0: She had folded inwards. She was standing, but she was collapsing inside. But I still went, like she asked. I left her in the doorway of the garage and I walked down the street, turned into another, heard the sound of cars, followed that, and then I came to the jumble of shops and traffic that formed the churning ocean of life near the back of King's Cross Station. The air was full of dust and the sunlight was hot. The tearing, hammering sound of rebuilding was everywhere. It's the song of London, the city's in constant regeneration. It's a shark continually regrowing its teeth. The exposed edges of buildings snagged my vision where they struggled out of their plastic jellyfish wrapping. The nets around the scaffolding halted me in my stride and pulled me backwards into reality. It felt like being caught and bitten by something huge and then being ripped apart by grimy noise. The Sky Machine by Martin Liddermont Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont. CHAPTER nine The Silver Wood I needed to make a phone call and if you can't get a working phone in the half square mile around King's Cross you'd have to be in a sensory deprivation unit. So I went into a shop whose doorway was a rectangle of flashing red and blue lights and whose interior colour scheme seemed to be predominantly fluorescent orange and I chose a burner phone from a display that was a floor-to-ceiling mosaic of black and silver slabs. Professor Varmer I said, a few minutes later, sitting on a litter bin, with one hand to my free ear, trying to drown out the ambient noise. Is that you, David? she asked. Is Ms Leistrama with you? Dr Leistrama, I replied. And no, she isn't. Susan and I are no longer in any kind of contact. So what is it, David? asked Farmer. I think we have all been distracted, I said there was silence from the other end. I strongly recommend that you tell everyone involved to forget about the ideas that we discussed in Amsterdam, I said. Be very sure to submit pre-access research plans to the appropriate ROC Governance Committee before conducting any work involving early weather satellite imaging. I'm talking 1960s and early 1970s. Please explain, Farmer said. Thank you. Professor Varma, I replied, and I smashed the phone against the side of the black metal bin. I had asked the phone shop owner if there was an internet cafe in the area, especially one that might not seem obvious. He had looked at me suspiciously, but he gave me an address and directions. I found the shop which said it was an English language education centre, and overseas money transfer agency. Inside the entrance there was a steep wooden staircase beside the door to the office, and I went up that. I heard someone come out of the office and follow me, and I stopped on the landing. Assalam alaikum, I said to the young man standing on the stair below me. Wa alaikum assalam, he replied. Can I help you? A few minutes later I was sitting with a yoghurt drink at a small table in a neat attic room. Two students were in the corner, busy at their own workstations. A large floor-mounted fan swept cool air over us. I tried to log into the Rock. Its minimalist green and grey homepage loaded up with no problems, but then, as I expected, when I went to the login page, I was still locked out. I was seeing the same verbose message as before. We are sorry, but we are presently unable to authenticate your access to this resource. Please try again later. I thought for a moment, and then inserted the flash drive Susan had given me. The Rock's login page disappeared, and lines of code scrolled up the screen very fast. Then it went blank, apart from a small white cursor flashing in the top left-hand corner. I stared at that little retro-blinking dash for a long time. Susan had said that Carl had sent her a final text that read, Love you. Susan, run. Sky machine. And she had run. She had run to me, wearing a wire and with a tale about governments and their sky machines. A tale that was almost out of this world. I believed it, finally. I believed I had been caught up in it accidentally, like Varma and Hendrix and Wills, and that it was nearly a fatal mistake because organisations as big and as ruthless as Hellizen don't do things politely and reasonably. But then Susan had taken that tale and twisted it like a Rubik's Cube, and suddenly all its multicoloured faces were refusing to align, and I didn't like it. I wondered if this was how it felt if you're a brainwashed cult member confronted with the truth about your guru. The initial sense of disorientation and betrayal, and then the cold anger and the feelings of loneliness, abandonment. Love you, Susan, run, Sky Machine. Carl had only seconds to send his last words to his sister as they came for him. I imagined his fingers moving over the small screen while he was trying to get away. Something pale and deadly was at his heels or hammering on his door. No time, no time even for commas or periods in the text. Susan hadn't shown it to me. She had told me what it said, or what she thought it said. I stared at the flashing dot for another long age before I put my hands on the keyboard and typed the one word, RUN. I pressed the return key. Enter password, said the screen. I drew a breath, held it, and typed, Sky Machine. For a moment, nothing happened. Then three numbered folders scrolled up the screen. When they stopped, I opened the first. It contained a long, single column table of more than a thousand image files. I opened one marked Composite. It was an animated sequence of weather satellite photos. A large number of them had been strung together to make a jerky, moving image. The picture zoomed in the sequence repeated, and a red circle appeared centre screen. Inside it, magnified to the point of graininess, a tiny geometrically perfect spiral rotated within what should have been a perfectly normal altostratus cloud. From the level of magnification, I estimated the spiral was about half a kilometre in diameter. I tried some of the other files at random. The same thing, only in still images this time. Only the cloud types changed. The perfect spirals hung in the atmosphere, calmly rotating where no object that size and shape could possibly be. I opened the second folder. It was another table. In the first column, the file names were the same as the ones I'd just been studying. The second column held geographic coordinates. They gave the location of the spirals, I assumed. The third folder opened a customised map showing what each coordinate referred to. Red circles were plotted across the globe, with the majority over the UK and Brittany. I zoomed in, and I finally saw what Carl had found, and had charted for us. I sat back, and put my hands over my face. Oh no! I whispered. I don't need this. Each spiral had been lazily spinning over an ancient stone circle. After an hour looking through as many of the files as possible, I stopped. This was it then. This was the truth that had been hidden behind a massive untruth about cloud seeding and ionization arrays the size of mountain ranges. This was the reason Varma and the others had been made to think they had soiled their hands and stained their reputations by coming into contact with a conspiracy theory. This was why I had to believe that The Rock concealed a scandalous story of international competition to turn the weather against whole populations. Why my career had to be wrecked, why Susan Leistromer and her group had to be marginalised and expelled, left as harmless, frightened idiots on the fringes of science and why Carl Leistrammer had to disappear. We all knew too much, but we hadn't realised what it was that we knew. The Sky Machine was the key to a truth. It just wasn't the one I had expected. As if my thoughts had been read, the screen flashed once, and instead of the pictures I had been studying, a man was there, head and shoulders filling a video conferencing frame. He had pale eyes tinged with green and very light hair. I wasn't particularly surprised. In fact, I had thought they might have been faster than that. He looked frail to the point of sickness, but there was nothing weak about his stare or his voice which spoke to me from the laptop's headphones. Hello, Dr. Forrester, he said. I'm not sure whether to say congratulations or commiserations. I leave it for you to decide. "'but all in good time. "'I wonder if you'd be so kind as to meet with me. "'Do you happen to know of the Druantia project, "'specifically the silver wood?' "'Yes,' I said flatly. "'I have visited it.' "'That's excellent,' he replied. "'He smiled then. "'It wasn't pleasant. "'I'll see you there tomorrow morning,' he said. "'Early, if you don't mind.' 5am. The gates will be unlocked. I'm sure I don't need to give you any warnings or any assurances for that matter. No, I said. You don't need to do that. Goodbye, Dr. Forrester, he said. The Durantia project occupies over a hundred acres in the middle of a triangle of nondescript scrubland bounded on one side by a dreary main road the one that drags itself through the centre of England. It's a part of the world that seems dedicated to giving up. Wide, flat land edged with featureless hedges and bushes. It feels too much effort to move very far because everywhere looks the same and what's the point? Grey sky and fields that appear from above as though they've been boiled for hours, like cabbage in a saucepan. The houses clump optimistically into collections of red and brown shapes that aspire to be villages, but are always trying to break up and wander away to die alone. Small streams and culverts dissect the place, all of them meandering helplessly. Little stone arches sometimes let them flow off the land and escape under the road. Modern steel bridges try to staple the broken skin of the fields together where the waterways slice them open. Those long slashes bleed a dark reflection of the sky and always seem to be brimming, eager to overflow and wash out soil that's already dead. There are few farms and no tourists. No one walks here for recreation. There are no sports played, no industries built. Only the cars and the lorries move, making haste to get through nowhere their drivers feeling the oppressive weight of the dusty air, peering into a distance that always has a yellow tinge, an autumnal sear, no matter what the weather is doing or the time of the year. They put the Druantia experiment here because the land was cheap. The choice of location had an unexpected bonus of keeping all but the most interested visitors away from the site, which has a high perimeter fence and 2 porter cabins, one for security and maintenance people one for transmitting equipment. It operates mostly unstaffed. Automated systems maintain it. Named for a mythological wood spirit, the project consists of 7,000 artificial trees set in rank and file regimented like soldiers on parade. Each tree is about 4 metres high. Each has an array of large movable veins extending sideways from a central alloy trunk the metal surfaces carrying embedded microchannels, like the veins in real leaves. Artificial chlorophyll is pumped through them, powered by sunlight during the day, and by stored energy at night. The trees have plastic tubular roots that suck up moisture from the ground. Tall poles, set at regular intervals amongst the trees, carry monitoring equipment that operates at twice the height of the arrays to track carbon dioxide and oxygen levels in the surrounding atmosphere. Invisible laser light is threaded between the trees to do the same monitoring nearer the ground. The Durantia project attracted some attention when it was first built as a university scheme, but it was smaller then, and the trees were clumsy things, assembled by students from a range of materials. Over the years it has been added to, and more funding has been secured, but because it operates so slowly, And because meaningful results accumulate very gradually over time, there's been little for the media to get interested in beyond the novel idea of an artificial wood. The journalists gave it a catchy name, The Silver Forest. And then when they learned how long it would be before they might actually get to write about some results, they moved on to other stories. The people who visit now are mostly scientists and the occasional photographer and filmmaker who see an opportunity to use the trees to create an otherworldly setting for a drama or a fashion shoot. You can just about see it from the road. There's a lighter shade to the sky and sometimes the sun strikes sparks off the trunks and the veins and they glitter like a distant string of lights that run and ripple, keeping pace with you as you drive. But there's no signage. You have to know where to turn off. It was very dark as I tried to find my way there. I missed the turning initially and found myself halfway down a rutted track leading to a collection of farm buildings before I noticed my mistake. I managed to do a U-turn without getting stuck and found the right gateway half a mile back down the road. The security barrier had been raised which was why I missed it in the first place. I drove under the pole and, after half a mile, I parked on the small tarmac area that the project used for cars. The trees were a dense mass of shapes behind the tall wire fence, and the main gate stood wide open. Lights were off in the two cabins, and he was standing in the middle of the central access roadway. Pale eyes, white hair, completely confident. I got out of the car and walked up to him. The sun was rising behind him, and his shadow lay long and sharp on the ground. Come with me, he said. And he turned and set off into one of the rows of artificial trees.
1: I watched him go. It all ended then, for me. Now I'm empty. Whatever he finds, I won't know won't be there, will I? I don't care. Now you told me what happened to Carl. Nothing. Nothing left. Lost everyone. If I could, I would scratch out those inhuman eyes. You're such cowards. Hiding behind Hellizen, getting them to do your dirty work and then emerging from the shadows to finish us off. Do you like the thrill? Do you feed on it? Getting tired of me, are you? I'll stop talking in a few moments, when the pain hits again. You can wallow in the noise I make, because that's all you're getting. You must realize by now, I don't know what it is that you're doing, or who you are. It doesn't matter, nothing matters. Yeah, smile. You won't give me the antidote, will you? thought not. I'll admit, I had hoped you would. Those first few days it was practically all I could think of. When would it take effect? How long was the delay you'd built into your dose your paid thugs got me to swallow? Well, now I know. In the end you didn't need this as a backstop, did you? Carl enough for me. No additional persuasion required. But even if you understand pain, You don't understand, love. What? You're gonna count it down? Nice of you. I'll count it with you, shall I? Let's do it. Yes. Ten. Go on. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three, two, one.
0: The Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Lydermont. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Lydermont. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and The Pangolins. Additional sounds by Strangely Gnarled on freesound.org.